Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you every week from my studio in Dallas, Texas. I'm fascinated by the journey that people take in their lives. The journey leads some to failure, others to mediocrity, but for a small few, through twists and turns and ups and downs and often a little bit of luck, they build incredible lives. What I call a lifestyle by design. And I only want to interview the last group, the people who dreamed big, stayed the course, overcame failures, and now lead their life on their terms. My guest today has done just that. It is my pleasure to welcome Ed Milet to the You Need More Money podcast. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for having me, brother. It's great to be with you. It's a pleasure to do this with you. I know you're coming to us from your home in Laguna Beach. I used to live in Newport Beach for a couple years before I moved to Dallas, Texas. Uh, I'm not sure I know the, the exact neighborhood you're in, but I've seen the view. It is, yeah. it is just as world-class as it could possibly be. It is beautiful, but I certainly envy the tax move that you made. So, <laughs> <laughs> you do that pay the fun. sun. You pay the sunshine tax, buddy. I absolutely do. It's, it's pretty big, actually. <laughs> it's a big sunshine tax. No question. So, Ed, the purpose of the podcast is to help my audience get control of their money. Uh, I have a book that comes out in in March called "You Need More Money." It's the story of my brother-in-law, uh, my wife's only brother. We lost him. Uh, he died at forty-six years old. Um, he left a wife and four kids with no health insurance, no life insurance, and a hundred bucks in a bank. Oh my gosh! I'm so sorry to hear that. Wow. Thank you. It was. It was. Um, and I've said this before, but if you had to pick the absolute worst person to leave my wife, and I mean it more so even than me, and maybe even our three boys, it was her brother. They were just thick as thieves. And, um, and to have that happen was just an incredibly disruptive situation in our lives. But we also looked for some good in it. We know that he went to his keeper. We know that he was ready to go meet his keeper. And that gives us all solace. But the money lessons that it taught me was, how does a guy bust his ass for 25 years and end up in that spot? And then for my wife and I to be in the fortunate position where we were able to step in and remove money from the equation for that period of time of their lives to cover all the bills and just allow him and his family and the doctors to try to get him better. Um, wow. Wonderful of you. It, it showed, it showed me, uh, by the way, the greatest gift ever given to me was the ability to write those checks to someone so important to my wife as her brother, right? It was very powerful, but I wrote a little story about it. It ended up getting turned into a book. The Penguin bought the, read the book. I cannot wait. Well, please let me know and I'll get a copy. Yeah, for sure. I'll, absolutely. The book comes out in March. But, but that's the impetus of the podcast is to begin to open other people's eyes to what I believe is an absolute epidemic. People don't have enough money. They live in what I call false positive in which they think they're doing better than they are. They yeah. are, they, you know, the data supports the argument, but, but then when you just look at some of the real life situations that I've dealt with, I, uh, I'm just convinced that for a period of time in my life, my message has to be, and my mission has to be, how do I help people do something as simple? And this is how you've built your career and your success. Simple, something as simple as buying a doggone insurance policy. You're right. So that you can protect the people when the surprise that you didn't expect happens, Right. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine what yeah. my brother-in-law could have done for 200 bucks a month, Ed? Well, yeah, I know what he could have done, right? Yeah, yeah, because right. Business. And it, the unfortunate thing is, it's so wonderful you're doing this, brother, because uh, stories like that are all too common. And, uh, in fact, they are common. It's, it's rare. That's what's incredible. It's rare today, and it shouldn't be, and it doesn't need to be. Just some simple things you do. Uh, can alleviate that. But it is rare that the reverse is true. It's rare that a 46-year-old man in our world today, if God forbid he has to leave, does leave his family in great condition because of the misinformation that's out there and um, or lack of information, which is going to be so wonderful that you're going to be providing this. My firm does that. I know you've had other guests on and will that do that as well. But this needs to stop. There's no reason for it. If you're employed and you have a family, there's no reason why you can't protect them and take care of them. If you take the right steps, there's no reason why you can't retire. You may not retire rich, 
but you can live richly the whole time and you can retire with dignity and you can care for your family. So I'd love this. This is you're right in my go zone, man. This is my passion of my life right here. All right. Well, thanks, buddy. That's that's why it's such a pleasure to have you on. Now, one of the things, Ed, is I've learned more about you is I, I without question, you control your time. Right. You are not the slave to time. Time is your slave. Help me take me back to the early days. When did you realize in your life that you were going to control time versus the opposite? That's a great question. Um, Before I even really started to work in my career, I was an athlete, um, an average one, but I played college baseball. And I had a chance to play a little bit after that. And so I had a little bit of a taste of what it was like, not maybe just to control my time, but what it was like to have to discipline myself in order that time didn't control me. You know, as an athlete, because I wasn't real big, I wasn't real fast or strong, I kind of separated myself by managing minutes better than the other guys. So mm-hmm. I had to get to BP a little bit early. I'd get stretched out sooner. I'd stay in the gym 15 minutes longer. And I started to find out there's these little increments where if I, you know, carve out a little bit more time in the morning than the average guy, I stay a little bit later, I start to do these things, I'll control my time. So when baseball ended, I didn't have a whole lot of desire to have somebody to tell me. I didn't need someone to tell me you must be here at 8 a.m. You must leave here at 5 p.m. Because I'm not the kind of guy that's going to do that anyway. So early I knew. This is, you know, the great things about being an entrepreneur. I was just saying this the other day. Someone said, what's it like to, you know, to be uh, wealthy or rich? I said, that's really cool. But the coolest thing about being an entrepreneur is I haven't had to be anywhere in about 25 years. Mm-hmm. No one's told me to be anywhere I had to be. And one <laughs> of the most wonderful things about being an entrepreneur is I don't have to be anywhere I don't want to be. It's powerful, man. You don't have to laugh at the jokes that aren't funny. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have to do the small talk stuff. And that, so you, some of you entrepreneurs just say, well, I'm broke or I'm not, I'm not successful yet. Well, that's one way of measuring it. But let me tell you something. It's pretty cool to be free. The downside real quick is there's nobody to tell you where to be. There's nobody to tell you to get up. There's nobody to tell you to make those phone calls. Nobody to tell you to hustle and me. You know this from the massive success you've had. So it's a responsibility when you're in charge of your time as much as it is a joy. And so I take that really seriously. I've already had, it's, it's 8 a.m. here. I've worked a full day for most people. Already. Yeah, no question. Day. Me too. Me, I mean, no question about tell. it. My, my, my throat is already hoarse from today already. You know? <laughs> I relate. Yeah. But, but people, you know, that's just, I hope we get uh, enough time to really get into that because I, I just believe uh, I just believe people don't want it bad enough. And mm-hmm. and even if they do want it, they have no concept of really what it takes to get it. But we'll, hopefully we'll get into that a little bit. But let, let's stay going back a little bit. I mean, you, you know, uh, I want to figure out what's going on in your house as a kid. So you're the only boy of a family of four. You got three sisters. Correct. What was the home life like as a kid? What what were you hearing? What were people telling you as a kid? Um. I got, two, I got a good example and a bad example at home. So my old man is my best friend to this day. Uh, my dad's sober now 30 years, but I grew up like a lot of people did. I grew up in a really dysfunctional environment. Mm. So my dad had a drinking problem until I was about 15 years old, severe. And so um, I grew up in chaos. I grew up in stress. I grew up in a loving family, right? So the, I have a world-class mother, beautiful environment. I'd call us middle class, maybe lower middle class, which I always tell people maybe the hardest place to go win from because if you grow up poor there's disadvantages to that clearly but one of the advantages is you many people occurs i don't want to live like this i know what i don't want right there's a pain avoidance technique involved if you're really wealthy that can be a detriment too because you grow up a little bit soft maybe things are handed to you but the upside is you become accustomed to and comfortable around success and successful people the middle that's tough because it's not horrible but it's not great. It's good. And that's the enemy. Right. And so there was a blessing that I had dysfunction because it wasn't a normal middle class family. What I did see, though, is an extremely hardworking man and my father, you know, like that generation. My dad was up at 5 a.m. out of the house before we were out of bed, came home when it was dark out. My dad's a horse, man. He's a worker. Right. Mm. So I knew as a man, as a little boy, that's what a man does. A man gets up and provides a man busts his tail. He doesn't complain. So I saw all that great stuff. I did not grow up in a family that talked about dreams or your future or achievement or wealth. My dad even tells me to this day, my obsession in my life was to put food on the table for our family. And he feels like he achieved that. He's raised a a wonderful family, but never even thought. I mean, we didn't go on vacations. You know, we never (laughs) 
never been to Hawaii. You know, we didn't take vacations. We didn't, I didn't even think about vacations, you know, those kinds of things. But so I had a loving, dysfunctional, middle-class family is how I grew up, is but, how I described. But what, that dysfunction came from what? Uncertainty of what was going to happen tonight? Was tonight going to be a good night or a bad night? You got it, brother. Or is dad coming home tonight? Oh. You know, there were nights where sometimes you wouldn't even make it back. Not a lot, but that would happen. And just the stress with your parents. So many people that are listening to this can relate. Just the stress in a house, the heaviness, you know, the yeah, and the being the oldest boy, I probably took on this caretaker role for my three sisters to some degree. And I don't want you to think I had this abusive environment. I didn't. It was just stressful. You I, know, get I, remember it. I remember thinking they're going to get divorced. I wonder which one I'll live with. You yeah. know, I love my dad. I love my mom. And that's not things children should have to think about when they grow up or seeing your parents fight often. And so it was just stressful. I think I'm a serious, intense dude, you know, and I wonder sometimes, did that come from being forced to be pretty serious and intense when I was a little boy? I don't know. It serves me. I still have this belief. I say all the time, I don't think it sounds corny. But I don't think things in your life happen to you. If you look at everything happening to you, then, you, then you're constantly sort of overcoming. I think things happen for me. I think they happen for you. So my dad's drinking happened for me. It prepared me for this life I have now. Well, you know, I know that you're uh, friends with Tony Robbins, and I watched that uh, that Netflix movie on that, and I had such an unbelievable breakthrough because uh, my real dad left when I, was, when I was six months old. I never saw him again. He was gone. Poof. Just gone. Wow. And then my mother remarried, and he adopted me, and he was a, he was a tough guy. Um, and he, he was, uh, like I grew up every day being told how stupid I was and what a retard and an idiot. And, and I didn't deal with a tremendous amount of baggage cause I just pushed and burned hot. But when I saw that Tony Robbins movie, when he actually said a lot of similar, what you just said in regards to my upbringing made me who I am. And so I look at, I I forgive and love all for the gifts they gave me. Man, I I was like, count me in. I like the sound of that. And that's how I look at all of it now. So my relationship with my adopted has gotten much better because I don't hold him again. I hold nothing against him anymore. He hooked hooked me up. Yeah, I'm the same way with my father. And it's interesting because people will ask me about Tony and I, when we talk, and it's, I'll be honest with you, these are things we talk about. Like the things you'll hear him saying, though, those specials are from stage or myself, we talk about together. And we both really do. He had the same type of, uh, you know, a very dysfunctional upbringing, too. And I really do believe that, you know. And that's one of the great things about having friends that can shape your thinking, too. You know, we all should have, doesn't need to be Tony Robbins. Yeah. We all should have people that shape how we think, that serve us in changing the way and sculpting our minds. And, Certainly, Tony's been one of the people that have done that for me. No, no question about it. But, but now let, let's stay on the baseball thing. So, so you have yeah. success. Uh, would you consider yourself to have been big man on campus in high school? I mean, you were a star player in high school. I going to really, play? No, actually, um, I would say, well, I, I would have been at any other school. My school, we were number one in the nation. And so wow. I got what I am a product of. And it's funny in hindsight. You're just making me think about it. I have played on some great teams, man, in business and in sports. And so one of my high school teammates, one of my very good friends to this day, his name's Jimmy Edmonds. Jimmy played 18 years in the big leagues. So the guy I stood next to in the outfield was one of the best players in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So I was a really good player. Our, I think our high school team, I think we had six or seven guys go on to play Division One college baseball. So we were loaded. So I was on a really good team, which raised my standard, right? But I wasn't big man on campus. I'd say I was, I'm real shy, very introverted. I did meet my <laughs> wife. I met my wife in high school. And so, or we started dating in high school. I met her before that. So I sort of have that security blanket too, where I could kind of hang around her, but no, nah, I wasn't a big man on campus. I'd say if you, I'd say if you went to high school with me, you'd think I was sort of an average dude. So when he got hurt, how devastating was the injury to you in your psyche? Huge. Uh, Cause I never, I never thought about, this is true for so many people. You have that first dream, I never thought about another one. In other words, <laughs> that's what I was going to do, right? I was going to play professional baseball, and I was on my way. Like, I had got to Division One, I. I got drafted. It was, it was happening, right? And so devastating because I didn't have another plan. And, and man, you're taking me back. I remember – I could just – I'm thinking through. No one's asked me that in a long time. I remember my last game. It actually makes me emotional because I, I think through, like, that ended and how uh, blessed I am that I found something else – that I was passionate about, right? And that I was, that I wanted to make my dreams happen for. So many of us have that first dream, even that are listening to this, you know, you were going to be a quarterback or a ballerina or 
an astronaut or whatever the heck you were going to be. And then you get out into the real world and you just start getting put in that box of life. I'm paying my bills. I can't do this. A couple people put you down. All of a sudden you're like, screw it. I'll just, I'll exist. I'll go to some barbecues on the weekend. I'll save a little bit of money. I'll see what I can get out of this life, you know? And that's what starts to happen to us. And you have to see the forces of the world trying to stick you in this box constantly, man. They're trying to make you average, ordinary. They're, they're trying to make you conform so they're not so damn uncomfortable with their averageness. And don't let the world do that crap to you. Find your passion. Find your dream. Chase it. It's like, I'll be honest with you. People, what's it, I'm, living, I'm looking right now you know, the, with the camera going the other way before. I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean right now, right? Like, Ed, you, view. Ed you have, yeah. a lot of people know Southern California, yeah. but the view you have is... <laughs> is a view and we we're going to get into money in a little bit and not talking about your money, but I'm going to get into money strategies, but your view is priceless. It will, someone could pay any price for your home and over time will never lose. It is an, it is an in, it is an unrepeatable view because it could never be duplicated again. Thank you. You're right about that. By the way, I got to have you to my place on the lake. I think that view's better. But we'll have you. <laughs> I do. I really do. But I will tell you, I grew up walking because you know Newport Beach. I grew up walking on these beaches and telling my girlfriend, who's now my wife, we're going to live there someday. Hey, man. Unbelievable. This is like an obsession of mine for twenty some odd years, and it is amazing to live here. But I'm going to tell you the truth: chasing this was real fun too. Yeah, no doubt. It's pretty damn awesome. You know, don't minimize how great the chase is. Getting here is beautiful, believe me. But I can tell you the chase, that's why I'm chasing the next thing. I'm addicted. I can honestly tell you I'm addicted to the chase, to the hunt, to the next thing. I just, I love that. So it's great to be here, but I want to be somewhere else too. Dude, what you have doesn't happen unless you love the chase. That's right. That's That's it. It doesn't happen. So let's talk about the chase. I mean, that gets you to to World Financial Group. And at some point, you see that formula. I call it the platform. You see that platform and you say, wait a minute. And I'm, I'm, I'm making assumptions here. But you just look at it as a math problem. And you say, if that's how it works, then all I got to do is force energy into it. And the math will just play out. Is that fair to say? Can you please repeat what you just said 3,000 times? Yeah, 100%. Like, I, your insights are – you're a good interviewer, by the way. But, yes, it's a, it was a math problem to me. I, I was young when I started. So – and I'm not high IQ. I'm average IQ. So I kind of went, oh, I got this. This is literally a time, energy, stick to run a numbers type. Oh, it's a work thing. And I, the world's that way today, though, by the way. It, it's such a great world for someone like me or someone listening to this who's willing to freaking work because nowadays I really believe this 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, ideas won, right? Information. If you, if you could bring new information or a new idea to the market, and that still is true to an extent. However, information is cheap. Now you can get information anywhere. So information doesn't separate people, right? The separator now, because all of us can with type into our keyboard, get access to the same info. The separator now, or a platform doesn't necessarily separate us. What separates us now is the work. And that's good news for a guy like me. Because more and more, and you know this, more and more entrepreneurs you meet that are on your program or that you and I both know that are mutual friends of ours, we wouldn't consider all of them brilliant. We really wouldn't. We have more brilliant friends than them, right? These dudes or these women are more resilient. They're tougher. They're harder working. They're more relentless. They're more obsessed. These are the qualities of most successful entrepreneurs now. It's not brilliance. It's not just your idea. There are rare people that come up with an amazing idea. People say, well, what about Zuckerberg at Facebook? There are plenty of platforms similar to Facebook, right? What he did is he executed better than everybody else. He outworked it. He worked smarter and harder. That's the separator now. And so that's what my separator was at World Financial Group, too, is just outworking them. But also in a platform that made sense, right? There's a lot of hardworking people in the wrong platform. And I mean, I, I say, yeah. listen, you can make the best sandwich you wanted, but you're still working at Subway, buddy, right? Yes. It don't it. work. So Great. you got to pick the right platform. And, and I always say when someone says, well, how do I know what to do? I say, find somebody who's doing it. Is got there it. somebody in that avenue that is making the money? No, I don't want to hear about promises. I want to know who's the number one guy and or gal, and what are the what is the real number? Somebody pull out his W two, 
and show it to me because then it's just a math problem for me and I'm chasing it and I'm competitive and that's it, right? Can I tell you what's amazing about that? The guy that ended up recruiting me here, his name's Rich Thawley and he's probably the number one guy. And he literally pulled out his W-2 when he recruited me. That's what's ironic. Yeah. I didn't even ask him to. And he did. And I went, I'm sold. Like, I'd been involved with another organization that was a very good organization. But I met my mentor. I met the guy that was going to, you know, like Napoleon Hill talks about, that had done it, knew the way, was going to show me the way. I was likely to produce the same results. And so I did. I, and I loved, in our organization, I loved the platform. I loved the industry. I loved the, mo- like we're talking about monster need like never-ending need for what the product was something that was simple enough that i could understand it and like honestly i think you feel this way too like something that when i'm done doing it i just feel really good i helped somebody and when i was young i don't think i really appreciated how much that means to me to like really be proud of what i do because i think you can't transfer to somebody that which you aren't experiencing yourself right so you can't transfer belief and pride and your cause and your mission if you're not really feeling it. And so that, I think that was another separate. It's like, I really do love this. Yeah, I, but, love the, I love the change it makes for people. But the, the other key thing, which your business is somewhat different than my business because you have long-term recurring revenue. I have short-term recurring revenue. If I finance yeah. a guy's you know, $80,000 tow truck on a four-year note, it's yeah. zero at the end of four years, and he may pay off at 24. You yeah. found in your platform long-term recurring revenue, and that's a key takeaway for the audience, that if you're looking for the revenue that you're making today in the form of commissions, you're missing the big upside, which is where's the rev after today? You got it, because there becomes a point where there's diminishing returns if you constantly have to renew your revenue stream all the time, and there's just a fatigue factor, too. Yeah. And so the, the great thing about being in the financial services industry is the fact that there's recurring revenue. It's also it's also something where you you're going to rarely meet somebody who doesn't have an interest or a need in what you do. Not everybody, with all due respect, needs to do their car financing, right? Not everybody needs a watch. Not every typically almost everybody you meet has a financial condition that they need help with. And so there was a huge need too. Well, there's two things in my business that do work to our favor. There's 3.5 million truckers in the United States. So it's a decent sized audience and the big publicly traded banks are deep in it. And so I just followed the money. I said, if Wells Fargo is doing $3.5 billion, I can peel off a couple hundred million and they're not even going to know who we are. Right. So, (laughs) so, and, and that's what we ended up doing. It just took for the audience as they need to understand a lot longer than I thought. And I was a hell of a lot harder than I thought. And now it's still difficult because guess what? We are now on Wells radar screen, right? And the big boys, they don't mess around. And and so it takes competition to a whole new level. By the way, I relate to that because for years and years and years, our firm was uh, successful, but kind of under that radar. You know, you operate one way. And now, <laughs> now that's not the case anymore. Now we're slugging it out with them. And now there's a whole new level of competition, and which, by the way, is good. It makes our products better. It makes us have to refine our comp, all kinds of things. But I relate to that big time. But, Ed, you go through this rise at, at WFG in which, I mean, it's really a, uh, I don't want to call it a meteoric rise because I don't even know the time frame. How long before you started to when you really became in the in the top echelon of WFG? Was that a, a uh, decade? Was it? Yeah, I'd say a decade. So I did. I uh, my first year, I really struggled. I didn't. I was full time. You know, I don't know what I made. I mean, I ended up. Jeez, I, I probably made thirty grand my first year or something. I mean, really. And that's when that's when all the naysayers start coming out. Your family can you get a real job. Let me get you an interview somewhere else. You know, and you start thinking about it. You know, it's very difficult. So that happened. And then by second year, I think I, I I'd have to look. I, I don't quote me on this, but I think my second year I made close to eighty. And then from then on, I made in the six figures. But when you're making six figures and running a business, you're still pouring money back into it. And so I think I got to maybe the upper echelon of the company in maybe my eighth ninth year, mm-hmm. where. I went, okay, now I'm slugging out with these big guys in our organization too. And then there's something about that, that a lot of people, they're will to wins for sale. You know, they can be bought. And I talk about this all the time, like failure can buy people. So in the beginning, a lot of guys who make 30 grand the first year, that failure buys them, they're out. And then success can buy your will to win. So I had, you know, a lot of people get to two, three, 400 grand a year. You can buy their effort. They're like, ah, this is, this is more than I expected. I'll stop working now. And I watched that happen in our company and friends of mine and others, and or they get to a million a year. You can buy them two million, three million, five million a year. You can just buy their will. Eventually, they go. Oh, that's enough. I'll stop. And I think mm. the separator was you. You. Mm. I, so far, you can't buy my will to win. It's not for sale. 
That's really strong, man. I, I, I think people really need to get their hands around what you just said there, man. That's really strong. At you, what you, price you point? Failure and there's no amount of money you're going to pay me that's going to buy my will to try to help other people or to just I'm kind of just turned on excited about finding the next version of me. Everybody yeah, says yeah, yeah. that, but I'm like really into it. I really would like to meet that guy. Dude, that's you an know? amazing segue because when I, the, the way we met for the audience to understand is I watched my favorite internet show, which is Confessions of an Entrepreneur with Cardone. I don't watch a lot of TV at all. I watch almost nothing on the internet, but I do like that show. I wish you would do more of those shows. Really? I wish you had more episodes and you guys are rolling around in the rolls and you said something that stopped me in my tracks. You said your biggest regret was that you had treated people poorly on your rise. Yeah. And it just, it, it was one of those lightning bolt moments for me because I've known that, that I was a major dick <laughs> <laughs> and I don't make any apologies for it, but I do yeah. have regret. And you summed it up in that interview in which your stance was, you, you can, it's perfectly fine to have expectations and push your team hard. You just don't have to be a dick about it. And yep. I was a raging asshole for a long time. And um, just now in my career, am I starting to actually even go back and realize how many opportunities I screwed up? of good people who deserve to be treated better, should be trained better, should have probably put more money into them, and we would be bigger. I was the cause that we're not $500 million. Yeah. I was the cause and that attitude. Now, we can, you and I can just justify it for me because I want to go there with you. I justified it as if I can do it, you can do it. That's how I did it. But my methodology was so demeaning, word you used, I related 100% to it. So how have you started to get grips with that, man? When did you start to even begin to realize that you were – you were you were you weren't the nicest of guys. Well, by the way, I appreciate your honesty on that too, because um, I, I could not say it any better than you said it. So uh, I was a dick, and um, it was just I was too aggressive. I I uh, publicly uh, I think this is a great lesson for people. I publicly ridiculed or criticized people when it could have easily been done in private. And what that was was just a lack of composure and discipline on my part. It was, yeah. it was just react. I'd like to say, well, I was trying to get the best out of him. No, I showed no discipline, right? I lost my temper. And so um, what changed it, I can tell you for sure what changed it. I know what it was. My son was about four years old. And so most of this took place prior to having children. My son was about four years old and came home from a preschool class. I think this is ironic and was really bullied and picked on that day. Mm. And they were cruel to him. And I, some of the words they said were really harsh and he could repeat them to me. And the problem with some of the words that were said to him is those were similar words I had used with adults in my business. And it stopped me in my tracks. And I thought if someone ever spoke to my son, the way I've talked to some of these people, hmm. they wouldn't have to worry about what was going on for breakfast tomorrow morning. Right? <laughs> so it woke me up. I thought, yeah. my gosh, you idiots. What? And for me, I was so such a fool at I thought if I stop doing this, because you're getting success as you're doing it, right? And so you go, if I stop this intensity, if I stop talking like this, well, that's part of my formula for winning. Yep. No, it wasn't. It was, the, it was the thing that was holding me back from the next level, right? So what stopped me in my tracks was really having children. And, and to this day, still, look, I'm intense, so are you. I still have to watch. I can feel it when it's coming sometimes. Like, I don't relate to lack of effort. I don't relate to lack of desire. I have a hard time... But what I found out is not everybody wants to get talked to the way I do. There's a, there's different languages that people respond to. I respond to criticism. Well, probably from being an athlete, like tell me my hands are too low. Tell me to spread my legs out. I want to know what I'm doing wrong. You don't even need to say it nicely, right? Some people need you to say it nicely. They need to say it in private. They just need encouragement. I didn't understand that. Yeah, but here's where it gets difficult because uh, I've been married 19 years, and, and I know you're, you're still with your high school sweetheart, and, and, and that's incredible. But it's hard to separate that conversation with, with employees or coworkers and at home. And so a lot of that intensity I brought through the front door, too. And to my wife's credit, she knew how to deal with it. And there were times where, it, you know, I even pierced the veil, right? It even, even she couldn't deflect it anymore. How did you guys deal with that? Because you're burning so hot. There had to be times in the, at the home front where, where your wife was like, hey, 
that you know, not here. Yes. Uh, are you living in my house? Because absolutely, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, I relate to that big time. Um, one is having been married to somebody with a temperament who could tolerate me. Oh, I there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do. I think she could bully were, the bully. If there were two of us, no, but if there were two of us just like this, I think even right now I'm going through this phase again in my career where I'm working more than I've probably maybe ever worked again. It's just a phase I'm in that I hope lasts forever. Not that I've not always worked hard, but something shifted in me. And I can tell that that's disruptive. I can tell I'm edgier. Um, yeah. So I, still, I still have to govern it. I think that uh, the way that we always have dealt with things, too, is that uh, I'm uh, that's one of the few people who can basically tell me anything. And I listen. And so she, I could she tell me, listen, that's it. And I she's pretty good at checking. me. I think that started when we were little kids. And so even if yesterday I was doing an interview with Tim Grover here at my home, who's a wonderful guy. And when we took a break, she goes, edit that thing out. You just said, you know, mm. and I go, it's edited. Right. So um, she's good eyes and ears for me that way. No question about it. And so it's certainly it's, it's certainly an issue all the time when you're married to a freak like you or I. It's just it's we're not easy to be married to. We're not easy to no. be in a relationship with. I'm. I'm uh, my, oh, I can tell you something funny. I'll give you the perfect example of it. I, I, uh, I'm growing this beard out. It's no shave November or whatever. Right. My dad has cancer, unfortunately right now. And so, um, it's my daughter at dinner the other night goes, uh, dad, she's 14. My daughter's like me and you, she goes, dad, um, what's up with this midlife crisis you're going through? <laughs> right? And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you're, go- you're gone all the time. You're growing your beard out. You're working like crazy. You're kind of mean again. You know, you're again. And I said, boo, I said, listen to me. Your daddy's always going to be going through a crisis. Daddy is always in a crisis to get better. Always in a crisis to be the next guy. I went through a young life crisis a midlife crisis, and I'll go through an old life crisis. Just so you know, baby, you're never going to get your daddy to be quiet and settle and sit around the house and watch TV. That's not who daddy is. And I framed that. It was one of the most important conversations. My son and daughter were there, and I said, I'm always in this crisis, and I hope you're going through a crisis right now too. And so that's sort of how I phrase it at home. They kind of, It's almost like reframing what that behavior is for us. That's a that's an unbelievable takeaway because um, I know that there are times where you aren't happy, and yeah. and then you have to check yourself and say what on earth am I not happy about? <laughs> but but it's just I'm I I default to unhappy before I default to happy. Boy, me and, too. And that I don't think that's a problem, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm not complaining about it. It is just the way it is. But a yeah. lot of people default. They're constantly looking for happiness. And I'm actually saying to myself, if I'm unhappy 90% of the time, I'll really relish the 10% that I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) You and I are blood brothers. You're helping me feel like I'm not completely insane. Don't feel that way. By the way, that's how Robbins is. That's how Cardone is. I'm, uh, I could tell you that's how John Elway is. They're they're These guys, Sylvester Stallone's that way. Their default is I guess I, a discomfort. Struggle. Their default is uncomfort. Their default is I got to move, right. right? That's the default. I think that's a healthy thing. I do too, man. I do too. I think people celebrate way too much for way too long, you know? So, big time. So let's talk about the money piece for a little bit because sure. what I think the primary takeaway for people that – and, you know, a lot of people think that the book You Need More Money is just for broke people, and it's just not true because I believe <clears throat> there's a lot of people in the middle who are still ridiculously broke too. Guys making good money. Hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars a year who, who don't have two nickels to rub together. You and I know a bunch of people everybody else thinks is wealthy that you and I know have no money. You, totally. But there's a reverse to that, too. That I think people got to understand there is a lot of people with a lot of money, too. Guns. And Many so of them you wouldn't know it. Many of them you wouldn't know it, too. That's probably very true as right. well. Yeah. yeah. They don't all show how much money they have. So. So, I mean. When did you say, here's the big question I got for you on money. I got a, I got a number of them, but, but how did you know that you were in a financial position to make the move to move to Laguna Beach like that or to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, or, or to get the jet? I mean, at what point yeah. does someone say, I yeah. can do it? Yeah, I've never, uh, never felt totally comfortable doing any of it. Now, here's where I am going to be different than other guys you're going to talk to. So, um and I just say this for your audience. I don't say this to brag. Okay. I knew I was ready to move here because I wrote a check for the house mm. and I knew I, I knew I could buy my jet cause I wrote a check for it. I knew I could buy my Coeur d'Alene house cause I wrote a check for it. My boats are all checks. 
I have a zero debt, zero. And so um, I have an American Express card. That's it. And so that is a different, um, there's different ways to get wealthy, right? Like I, I have no problem with debt for, for people who use debt to get wealthy. I think that's wonderful, right? My formula has been when I was very young, I just wanted to get financially independent. I was obsessed with being financially independent. And so I saved and saved and saved and saved. And I know there are guys out in the space and I understand it saying you don't need to save. You need to invest. To me, savings and investing is the same thing. But I, um, I knew that I, I just don't think you should have showy things that are uh, stressing you out. That are leveraged up. Well, well, no, different, different. Yeah, yeah, different. You're saying you're yeah. saying that stresses you out. That's different than having leverage. Absolutely, because yeah. there are different tolerances for debt, right? And I've had debt. Believe me, part of the ways that I've gotten wealthy is I've owned real estate that I had debt on that I sold eventually for more money, and I used that debt to get into those properties. And so, believe me, I'm not anti-debt. I'm anti-stress debt because here's what it will do to you as an entrepreneur, particularly. It will paralyze you. Yes, it so will. If I get really leveraged out and I'm in debt, it'll cause me to go to work. I've never seen that formula work. Debt is wonderful, <laughs> right? You know this. You've, you've, helped, you've helped thousands of people utilize debt to make dreams come true yep. and move into a better life. So I am not anti-debt. I'm anti-stress debt. And we all have that threshold in our body. Like someone like Grant, who's a mutual friend of ours, his debt tolerance level is tremendously higher than mine, Right. Now, one thing Grant does, though, is he talks to people a lot about it. I'm not sure everyone listening to him has his stomach for it, his guts for it, right? And so, for me, it's a level of, I've never felt, I wake up here many mornings, I'm like, I can't believe I'm here. (laughs) It's all the time to me, right? You get on on your, I mean, it's the coolest thing in the world. You get on your jet and you're, I mean, I'm thinking, sometimes I'm like, really? Like, what the hell am I doing here? Because yeah. I remember not flying places on Southwest because I didn't have the 200 bucks, of right? Course, so of course. it's still this bizarre yeah. Yeah. navigation of who I used to be and who I am, right? And so I think it, for me, it's just uh, it's a comfort level of knowing that it's a stretch. Everything I've ever done is a stretch until this point in my life. But even now, you have three, four homes and a plane and cars, all this stuff. To say that it's not a stretch is still a stretch. So, so your answer to the question is, for your comfort level, it was when you could stroke the check. That's when you said, I can afford it. Yeah, for me. I think yeah. it's great. I mean, it, 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 listen, the point isn't to say what's right or wrong. It's it's how right. the, the individual doesn't spend enough time figuring out their own damn strategy. That's the problem, right? Well, Whether I, that strategy I, is leverage or cash, the, it's up to you. I think the hidden, I guess why I'm saying that is this, Matt, is that I think that uh, I think that there's a culture today of us wanting people to think we're where we're not, yeah. and we we end up causing ourselves pain in order to impress other people. Yeah, it's it's the Facebook generation, and so I just I I didn't I've never had the addiction to impress other people with my stuff because um, it doesn't really impress them anyway. And so my counsel to someone listening to this is. It'd be better to really be rich than to buy stuff to convince other people you're rich. I'll go with that. A thousand percent agree with that. Let's play what I call this money game so that we can really help some people because the audience is of a different of all different demographics. A, a guy or gal, they're 20 years old, say 21, they're getting out of college. Maybe they never went to college. Yep. Primary money strategy you would recommend to them? Woo. Um, invest in your own business. So uh, invest in things that you uh, can control and that you understand. Don't buy things you don't understand. Don't buy complicated financials. It's better to tell you what not to buy. And so for me, the things that I could control would be real estate that I owned. The things that I could control was my own business that I invested in. My dad used to tell me all the time when I started in business, he goes, why would you get super crazy with your investments when you have a money machine that you own? That's great advice from your dad. And your dad wasn't a super sophisticated investor, but that's the old, I say to all the time, look, it's how we countersell on debt for our business. I say, Mr. Jones, if I'm going to loan you the money at eight and your business throws off 25%, it sounds like you should be investing in your business. A hundred percent. I totally agree. And by the way, that's a perfect example where, you know, that I feel this way strongly. That's a perfect example that where debt isn't not debt isn't a good idea. It's a requisite. It's required in order to become wealthy. And so that in that case, I love using debt. So invest in things you understand and that you can control. So now let's go to the 40 year old, because by the way, we've put out some videos recently. I was just talking to, to the, to the publisher of the book about it on a side note. 
people think that a major publisher helps you with your book. They don't do shit. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling them things about marketing this book that you'd think they know all the answers on how to market. They don't know a damn thing about it. I said, we put out some YouTube videos of how to get uh, out of broke at 20s, 30s, 40s. And you know, the number one views was how to get out of broke in your 50s. That was wow. the number one viewed video of that group. So let's take it to a guy in their 40s. Now, we know the situation. Maybe he's got the big house. He's got the cars. Maybe the wife isn't working. The two kids are getting ready to go off to college. He's scared to death. How can that guy make more money? What can he do? Well, make more money. One, of course, what's my first answer going to be? My first answer would be that he ought to be associated with my firm, right? That's the first thing. <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't think that, there's something wrong with me. So my answer would be, you need to start a second business of some type. That gener- You're not probably going to get ahead financially on a W-2. That's just a, where I live here. I mean, if you want to be wealthy, we could walk this beach. No one here is employed by someone else. They're mm. just not. I can't find one, right? So, I mean, there aren't even doctors that live here. They don't get enough money as a doctor to live here. And so you're not going to get wealthy on a W-2. Find a 1099 business you can get involved with. Start in real estate. Start in World Financial Group. Start a startup. Do something you're passionate about. Make your mark. Own your thing. So that's the first thing I would say to somebody if they were in their 40s. Get free, man. Get free. Try something. Live your life. When you're 75, you will regret so deeply that you did not go for something big in your life. Just flat out freaking fact. Spread your wings. And if you don't know where to start that, find some mentors, find some people who are in a system like mine or similar where you can get some coaching and mentoring on a real intimate basis. That'd be the next thing I'll tell you. Investment wise, I like having a second home that's a rental property or multi-unit stuff. I love multi-unit I'm, I'm starting to partner with a brother-in-law of mine, I think, right now, helping him do that, get him into his – he's in that 40-year-old range. Yeah. I've told him, don't even buy your primary residence, man. Rent that sucker. Let's go buy a multi-unit building together. And I also have him involved in index products. I think index products – I'm not making financial recommendations because I am licensed. I have to be careful about that. But I like things for you that are listening to this. Just remember this. They can manage your downside risk as well. Everybody wants to sell you investments based on the upside of what it could do. And I'm telling you, winter comes in everybody's life and every financial sector and every season. And so I want something that I invest in that I think can minimize or at least mitigate my downside. So we're on the same page there because the reality is, uh, you know, knock on wood, that 40 year old is going to get another 40 years. He's going to get another lifetime. So why not start? Roll it. A hundred percent. I meet so many people, Matt, by the way, now that are in their 60s and 70s that have started businesses that are profitable. Mm-hmm. I meet them, especially here in Laguna Beach. You know, everyone's sort of cruising around the beach all the time. You run into them at Starbucks and I'll ask them, you know, and they'll say, well, I was a pilot till I was 55. And then I started this uh, card business and we've got four stores now and I'm making 180 grand a year. My son runs one. You know, and I, I meet yeah. all these advanced age entrepreneurs now that just had an idea that and you can just tell they're younger in their 60s than they were in their 50s when they had jobs. It's a deep, becoming an entrepreneur could be one of the fastest anti-aging things you ever do in your life. Yeah, that's awesome. It, be, it puts you back in the game. It does. You You're know? living in game. So uh, I want to talk about the game of fitness because today for me was leg day, right? Okay. And uh, and I hate leg day as everybody. Maybe you might like it leg day. But I hate leg day, right? I was saying to my trainer the other day, I said, man, when am I going to start feeling better, right? Now, we've been together like <laughs> two, three years and and he's like, well, that's the misnomer. He's like, the guys in the best shape never feel good, man. Yeah. We're sore all the time. Tim Grover and I were talking about that yesterday, both getting up off the couch. <laughs> <laughs> yesterday. But I know that you have a direct correlation between the body and success. And, and uh, to put words in your mouth, I think you lead with the body first. I do. You're so, right. so tell us a little bit about your your concept of physical fitness. Because with all due respect, I've seen some of your uh, older videos mm-hmm. and in the last decade or so, you've you've gotten big, man. I mean, you were always in good shape, but dude, you've gotten big. So, right. and, and lately, I've changed that. Like, actually, Tim said this to me yesterday. I've actually lost about ten pounds of muscle just to be a little bit more functional as an adult. Um, I did get too big for a while, but um, so I, I, this goes back to some Tony Robbins stuff. I take everything to the extreme, and so I was uh, got involved with learning from Tony and becoming friends. And, and uh, he used to always talk about any of you guys that know his stuff talks about physiology, language, and focus being this sort of triad. What he means by that is you can change your body, your state of your body, you'll change your emotions, right? And so his big thing and mine now is that if I'm not feeling a certain way, I want to move my body. And I went, well, if that's true, 
then I really want to, I really want to get my body to be my leading asset. So I read a book called the corporate athlete by a guy named Grappel. And this is an older book, but his theory was in the coming age, business people are going to train like athletes. And I've watched this now. I think the really great business people I know have the endurance, like what you're doing. They don't have to be muscular, but what they have is energy and health and vitality, right? They're alive. The best part of your workout, even on leg day, even though you don't feel good, even though you're achy, you've moved your body, you started to do things that you other people your age aren't doing. And so for me, fitness is the first thing I do after my prayer and morning stuff. And I just feel stronger. I'll be honest. I feel like when I walk into a meeting, I walk into a room, I have an advantage over you. I can beat you physically. Yeah. I can feel stronger. I feel pretty decent about how I'm presenting myself, right? I sit up taller. My abs are stronger. And so it's become uh, a trademark of mine, this whole thing I talk about maxing out, right? I start it physically because I can't control, neither can you that are listening, how a prospect's going to respond to me, whether I get or lose a big account. These are just things I can't control. Someone quits. Uh, a car crash on the freeway that I gets me in traffic, and I, I can't control these things. I can control getting in the gym. I can control moving my body. And one of the things I talk about all the time is self-confidence is the process of learning to keep promises you make to yourself. Self-confident people are self-trusting. They have a foundation of self-trust. They say they're going to do something, they do it. For me, the thing I know I can deliver on every day is working out. I can, whether that's my wife right now, I just watched her. She's walking on the beach. My wife doesn't go to the gym every day, but I have her and I have her convinced she needs to move her body every day. She needs to get physical every day. She needs to move, right? And so I'm huge on moving my body, changing my state, staying fit, staying healthy. But that movement for you is typically heavy weights. You like, to, you like to lift heavy weights. I have a podcast on it. I'm not sorry. I, I, I listened to it. Yeah, it was it's amazing. It's, it's at edmylet.com. It's on my routine, but I do. Yeah. I lift a body. Tim Grover and I were just talking yesterday. It was surprising to me. Our workout is almost identical. Mm. And it made me feel good because Grover runs Attack Athletics. He's worked with Kobe and Jordan and these other guys. It was sort of, a for me, almost a confirmation, an endorsement of what I do. And I learned that workout from Stallone, sort of that concept, you know, 25 years ago. And so I do leg day, just like you do, right? I have the days I do different body parts. And so what it became is I do have a genetic advantage in that I'm your normal kind of bodybuilder build. I'm that 5'10", sort of stocky. I wasn't when I was get wide easier. Can get yeah, I do. I'm not 6'8", yeah. where it's no long stuff. It's easier <laughs> for me to bulk up. In fact, I have to watch the um, bulking up stuff because it's easier for me to do mm. than maybe someone taller or longer. I listened to that podcast you're talking about, um, and one of the big takeaways was water, right? I mean, you just harped on it the whole time. And you, if I remember what you said, it was two gallons a day. I do, brother. Your memory is unbelievable. I'm huge in, on hydration. I think that keeps you young. There's more guys, by the way, they're talking about. Tony talks about it now. Tom Brady has a new book out where he's like hyper addicted. He's crazier about water than I am, right? And so Grover and I talked about this yesterday. I mean, your body's 70% water, right? And so especially if you're working out, especially if you take supplements. In fact, I can tell I'm, I'm, there's a camera and I'm watching myself on my screen. So funny you say this. And as I was watching it, I went, I'm dehydrated. Uh, <laughs> and, and the reason is, is the reason is I had a long day with Grover yesterday. I got up early and worked out today. And I, I'm like, this ends, I'm pounding some water because I, I, I'm less achy. My energy level goes up. Almost everybody listening to this, listen to me, everyone. Almost all of you are dehydrated. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. You drink coffee in the morning. You, whatever, you're dehydrated. I promise you, you don't drink enough water. That's the first thing you could do for your fitness is drink That's water. why you ache. That's why your head hurts. It's why you get the headaches. It's all that stuff. But let me ask you a functional question. I mean, what about having to go to the bathroom? Because when I, when I hydrate like that, I go to the bathroom. All, I got to stop all the time. So, <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, in the car, I got to pull over. I mean, it gets crazy when I drink a gallon plus. You're right. And me too. And uh, that's how I know when I'm dehydrated is when I'm not. Uh -huh. so, now, by the way, the other thing you're doing, and I'm not a medical doctor, but all these guys will tell you that ours that are MDs that are talking, it's one of the healthiest things you could be doing, not to be, you know, peeing. And oh, it's going to the bathroom because it's getting rid of all the crap. You're all getting rid of everything, man. It's one of the healthiest things you could do. So, you know what I do? And I, I heard you say this on one of the things, and I've been doing this um, actually since I saw the Tony Robbins movie and he did the cold water immersion. I do it every morning. So I'm in Dallas and it does get cold here. My pool is down to 57. 
Wonderful. And I go in every single morning. Sometimes I shampoo and shave in the pool, and I actually record it and post it, and some people freak out about that. But I, I, that. I do it to tell people that you you got to go in. Yeah, right? you got to, you, you got to, I mean, I love your term max out. I mean, there are many days I don't want to take that first step. And then I well, say to myself, what am I going to do? Go back in the house? Right. Of course not. I'm going <laughs> in. A, of course I'm going in. Yeah. <laughs> but, awesome. but that cold water is such a freak out. I mean, it just freak. And so when you're going in the water outside your house, that water is what? 58, 60, yeah. 61. It's cold. I have to, I'm looking at both the places I go every morning. I go either in my cold, uh, my, I don't have to do anything cause I live at the beach. So my, uh, my spa, my hot tub here is a cold tub. Mm. It's at about 57 degrees. And then the ocean right now is probably real similar. So I do one of the two. Here's why I do it. One, if anyone, anyone that does it, you're going to be alive. Baby. Yeah, instantaneously. Your, your skin is on fire. On fire. Yep. And here's the other reason you do it. You're doing stuff other people aren't willing to do. That's why I do it. That's, That's the only reason do. I do it. So I'm a crazy man. And when yeah, you start yeah, yeah, your yeah. day, if the first thing you do every day is something a 1% of 1%er will do, yeah. you started your day and so it has become more that for me frankly yeah me too than anything else now i will tell people that are in a cold place because i've had this on my podcast and tony doesn't say this enough either it's okay to go get warm afterwards see i you don't know? i don't because if you do, you and you better be careful because one of the things if you're just cold the whole time you you're more susceptible to illness of course right you're you're at that point your immune system somewhat suppressed so i do sometimes let myself go get warmer afterwards but i am a freak about it i do it every do it this morning I do it every single day. Yeah, so I won't do that. I won't go into the warm shower. To me, that's cheating. I won't do that. (laughs) I got to stay cold. I got to stay cold. (laughs) But I love it it when I get in the water and I, you can, I mean, it's funny how the body just naturally reacts, right? But you begin to feel the blood coming out of your hands and out of your feet and moving to the heart to protect the heart. I mean, you just see genetics just kicking in, right? It's it's unbelievable when it happens, but. Amazing um, that you do it. That's great. Very few people that have heard us both talk about it actually do it. So it's wonderful. That you I, I love it. And you get addicted to it. Like this morning, I, that first step, I said, oh, man, I want this second step. I want the third step, you know? <laughs> 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 All right. So you're at 10X Growth Con this year. You're going to be speaking in February in Vegas, right? Yes. What, what is the message that you think you're going to deliver to that audience, Ed? Yeah, I know what I'm going to be. He wants me to really talk about uh, building self-confidence, all of the steps of building self-confidence and so how that relates to making your goals and your vision happen. But I'm going to go through very specific, detailed steps to improve your self-confidence or to improve that in the people around you, your children, teammates and business colleagues. And so it's uh, it's it's one of these things that people just throw the term out. You know, be more self-confident, have more confidence. But there's really, I, I'm not aware of anyone who goes, these are the actual steps that you take in order to develop it. And so I'm going to be doing that. That's going to be the core message there. I'm hoping that I do a good job. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And and I mean, the one takeaway is tell people to jump in 57 degree water. That'll fix your self-confidence. It's the very, it's the very, it's one of the first steps is one of the first steps is doing what you tell yourself you're going to do, but it's actually it's doing things. It's it, getting addicted to doing things. Other people won't. That's do. it. Yep. Do shit that other people won't do is the fastest way to improve your self-confidence. Big time. And then hit record and then post it. <laughs> that's what I do. I need so, to do that. I'm going to record one soon. I'm gonna do, do it. That. No, that's what I do. Yeah, I do. I'll, do I'll send a message to you on it. I'll talk about you when I So as we finish, I know we had to move our day up because your dad does have surgery tomorrow, or I don't know if it's surgery or a doctor's visit. Which is it? You got a visit tomorrow. So yeah. we wish your father the best in this fight through cancer. This is Thank this you. is uh, this is life looking at us through the right eyes. You know. Thank so you, we wish you the best. Thanks for being on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure. My pleasure, brother. Okay, see you down the road. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.